Julius Caesar tried to paint Cato the Younger's suicide as the depraved final act of a crazed fanatic. In the triumph he celebrated after his victory over the last Republican holdouts in North Africa, he had paintings carried through the procession showing Cato tearing open his own wound. All this did was engender sympathy for Cato, who killed himself rather than submit to Rome's new tyrant, who was granted a dictatorship of ten years. The Republicans who had accepted clemency from Caesar now began to feel ashamed that they had taken the easy way out. Cato's nephew Brutus divorced his wife without explanation and married Portia, Cato's daughter. He wrote a book about his uncle-turned-father-in-law, praising his steadfast commitment to Republican virtues. Brutus even managed to persuade crabby old Cicero to write his own story of Cato, but his book focused on his old allies' personal virtue and steadfastness rather than his political career. Cicero, typically, was afraid of offending Caesar. He had also known Cato at his best and worst, and likely didn't want to rehash their shared history, which would remind everyone that Cicero caved to a dictator to save himself, and Cato did not. He much preferred Cato as a symbol than a living, righteous man, who more often than not rebuked Cicero for his own lack of righteousness. Even watered down, these books about Cato were not good for Caesar's regime. Within months of his suicide, one of Caesar's bitterest opponents was being held up as the ideal of aristocratic virtue in books which were openly circulated and widely praised. This is just the kind of thing that would not have been tolerated when Sulla was dictator. Maybe Julius Caesar really wasn't the best at everything. He ordered a book published criticizing Cato. There was plenty of material. Cato was an easy man to admire, but a hard man to like. Also, once one aspired to inflexible principles, any lapse could be seen as the highest form of hypocrisy. There was the election where Cato stood by while his son-in-law bribed electors for votes. There was the accusation that he had sifted through his brother's ashes for gold and silver after his cremation. There was the time when Cato divorced his wife, stood by as she married a wealthy man, then took her, and her new fortune, back when her second husband died. Cato had made a number of bad decisions during the run-up to the Civil War. It could be argued that the whole mess could have been avoided if he hadn't been such a stubborn nag. Cato was a contrary, obstinate fellow. Caesar didn't have Cato stricken from the histories, as later happened under his nephew Augustus with Mark Antony. Caesar didn't cut ties with Brutus or Cicero. He merely suggested that Cato the Younger's inflexibility had played a big part in causing the recent civil war, that his own hypocrisies tarnished his reputation, and that he shouldn't be so universally admired. Here we see the full extent of Cato's final victory over Julius Caesar. Had he survived and taken the pardon Caesar offered, Cato would have been a crankier, more unhinged version of Cicero, howling into the wind against the policies of Rome's new dictator. As peace and stability came to Caesar's empire, 
Cato would have been marginalized and ignored. The praise for Cato and Caesar's vicious personal response served only to build up Cato's reputation. It contributed to the revival of republicanism at Rome. Cato the Younger, as a symbol of republican virtue, was unbeatable. Hello, great minds! Mr. DGMH here, but wait, what the hell is DGMH? DGMH, or Drinks with Great Minds in History, is a weekly podcast that covers one of history's greatest minds each month. While we enjoy review and rate themed cocktails, liquors, and beers on the scale of greatness. As greats like Alexander Hamilton square off against George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and more, DGMH is the perfect cocktail of history, sarcasm, and alcohol, with a twist of psych and a bunch of shots along the way. So grab yourself a drink with some great minds in history. Cheers! Julius Caesar didn't last two years on the throne. In the end, the tyrant was assassinated by conspirators who included, most notably, Brutus, Cato's nephew. Before he died, Cato had declared Caesar an illegitimate king. Therefore, assassinating him was an act of patriotism. His successor, the Emperor Augustus, had learned the lesson Cato had tried to teach Caesar. Instead of portraying the Republic as a useless relic, as Caesar did, Augustus spent 40 years pretending to rule within the old Republican institutions, paying lip service to the Senate and the Assemblies, taking no title other than First Citizen. Rome's first emperor called himself the Restorer of the Republic and its Virtues. Once, on a visit to Cato's home, one of the emperor's advisors went on a rant about Cato's stubbornness, which I think we can all agree with. Augustus replied, To seek to keep the established constitution unchanged is a sign of a good citizen and a good man. Augustus knew what Caesar had been too angry to see. Embracing Cato was the best way to neutralize him. Even as he claimed to be upholding the ancient republic, Augustus kicked off five centuries of straight-up autocratic rule. As the empire grew, the tale of Cato in his last days at Utica became part of the curriculum of Roman education. The poet Lucan wrote the epic Pharsalia, the story of the civil war and Cato's death. It preached the nobility of a lost cause. The victorious cause was dear to the gods, the lost cause to Cato. According to Lucan, the hero to be emulated wasn't Pompey the Great, or even Caesar, but Cato, leading the survivors of Pharsalus across the desert to Utica. Lucan's play became required reading for generations of Roman schoolchildren. Centuries passed, and Cato's reputation took a beating once Christianity became widespread in the Western world. His suicide was the one deal-breaker for most Christian writers. St. Augustine claimed that Cato's suicide was an act of weakness instead of strength, an act of selfishness instead of selflessness. 
He claimed that Cato couldn't bear life under Caesar, with Caesar's pardon, so he killed himself rather than spend the rest of his days carrying around the burden of Caesar's mercy. Nor could he stand to watch the final destruction of the Republic. And if life under the tyrant was so miserable, why did Cato prevent his son from taking the same way out? Augustine preferred the uncomplaining endurance of the biblical Stoic Job to Cato's perceived cop-out. We couldn't keep train wrecks on the tracks without you. Please visit support.historystrainwrecks.com for all the ways you can help keep train wrecks on the tracks. There Cato stayed for a thousand years, admired for his principles, condemned for his suicide. The Renaissance, with its rediscovery of ancient pagan texts, showed Cato in a different light. He occupies a revered place in the writings of the poet Dante Alighieri. That ineffable sacrifice of Marcus Cato proved what liberty meant to him when, in order that the love of freedom might blaze up in the world, he chose rather to depart from this life a free man than abide therein without freedom. Cato died for liberty. It was that simple. It was this last elemental explanation that catapulted Cato into the hearts and minds of the people of the 18th century. A classic student at Oxford, Joseph Addison, wrote a five-act drama about Cato's final days. His play, Cato, was translated into six languages, copycatted across Europe, and cheered on the British stage for the longest theatrical run in history. This coincided with a time in Western history when the appeal of ancient Rome was at its highest. Generals compared themselves to Caesar, selfless statesmen to Cincinnatus, and the corrupt new money elite that sprang up in the wake of the Industrial Revolution to the selfish upper class of Rome. Kings were set side by side with dictators like Sulla, and every revolutionary questing for freedom against impossible odds was a Cato. No matter where you fell on the spectrum of government or society, the message of the play resonated. A series of letters appeared in British papers after the play's run. 144 letters about liberty, natural rights, and limited government were devoured in coffee houses across Britain and its American colonies. There was definitely fertile ground for some Cato worship. The play hit the American colonies to its most passionate reception. It would be the longest-running play in American history until death of a salesman. The play was quoted exhaustively by America's revolutionary generation. When Patrick Henry demanded liberty or death, he was throwing down the only choice Cato would allow. When the Continental Congress told King George they didn't want pardons, it was Cato telling Caesar he had no use for a tyrant's mercy. When Thomas Jefferson blasted the British king in the Declaration of Independence, he was echoing Cato's charges against Sulla and Caesar. When Nathan Hale regretted that he only had one life to give for his country, it paralleled Cato's line from the play, What pity is it that we can die but once to serve our country? 
but the founding father who identified most with Cato was George Washington. Even as a young man fighting the opening battles of the French and Indian War, he wrote, I should think my time more agreeable spent, believe me, in playing a part in Cato. His own personal attributes, keeping his emotions hidden, his implacable dignity no matter what storms raged, his modest refusal of command of the Continental Army, and later the Presidency, until he was essentially drafted into it, were all Cato. When he adopted a strategy of guerrilla warfare and slowly grinding down the poorly supplied, far-from-home British Army, he was following Cato's advice. Trust to time, which withers away all the vigor that is the strength of tyranny. The Continental Army marching to Valley Forge was Cato's band of survivors from Pharsalus, only this time the desert sand was winter snow. Washington staged the play for his men at Valley Forge, not missing the comparison between them and the ragtag survivors from the Battle of Pharsalus that Cato brought through the desert to Utica. Washington took quite a lot of heat from Congress for staging a British play, but his stubbornness in persisting with it was, shall we say, Catonian. Cato's appeal to America was his flaws. As a model for political leaders in modern times, he was physically tough, intellectually brave, unflinchingly principled, beloved despite his warts. You could say that when it came time to building a mold for the most revered American leaders, Washington, Lincoln, and the two Roosevelts, to name a few, Cato was the ideal template. He was beloved despite his unlovable traits. He was admired for the very inflexibility that made him a thorn in every Roman's side. His commitment to the Republic was everything. One might see something of it when Abraham Lincoln refused to consider any alternative to keeping the Union intact. Not a negotiated peace with the South, not a continuation of slavery, nothing. Cato accepted no terms, neither would Lincoln. The plaintive cry of everyone who abandoned the Republic during Caesar's rise, and those who lost heart when the British won the early battles of the Revolution, and the leaders who considered peace with the Confederacy, and the ones who told FDR they couldn't build a military force big enough to confront Adolf Hitler in 1941, was essentially the same. We aren't Cato's. The Founding Fathers and their descendants believe they were Cato's. It was his example they aspired to, and the best of them fulfilled it. On our next episode, we turn back to the life of another political leader who is beloved despite his many flaws, and had a commitment to his goals that was also Catonian, Huey Long. Stay tuned for The Most Dangerous Man in America, Part 3.